0: Amen. All right, so we're going to do something a little bit different. And you all are staring at me like a deer in headlights. (laughs) All right, so I need you up on your feet. All right, so this this series that Pastor Gary is going to be uh, doing, it's called Ain't No Rock. All right, and I believe that there is no rock that's going to cry out in our place today. Amen. Come on, I need somebody to help me. All right. So we're gonna do this song and we're gonna sing it and we're gonna do this every week uh, for the next six weeks, all right? And we'll have the band and stuff. So the band had no clue that I was doing this one, but we're gonna introduce it. And, uh, cause it's kind of new, but it's a very simple song and I'm gonna have to have you uh, put your hands together. Okay? So go ahead and do that now. No, you have no, okay. (laughs) All right, here we go. alive to glorify i'll praise his name oh ain't no rock gonna cry in my place as long as i'm alive to glorify i'll praise his name come on praise oh praise his holy name as long as i'm alive Bye. Babe, one more time ain't no rock ain't no rock come on right, come on as long as I'm here. Right. ain't no rock oh i'm gonna cry in my place oh. We sing a prayer.
1: that's your confession, say amen. Amen. You can be seated. This Sunday marks the first Sunday of Lent. And for some of us, that's not a familiar term or experience. I grew up in the evangelical traditions. And for some reason, we didn't celebrate Lent at all. Everything drove toward the resurrection. In fact, some of you uh, that I talked to this morning, Uh, wanted to know what the word Lent even meant, where it came from. Well, that's why you have Alexa. (laughs) Find out everything you want to know from her or Siri. And um, it really is a time of reflection leading up to the celebration of the resurrection. It's 40 days that parallels (laughs) Jesus' 40 days in the wilderness. And the idea is that as we prepare for the resurrection, we should take time to remember the price that he paid for Resurrection Sunday. I don't know about you, but I think that's a pretty good idea. I don't know why the evangelical church hasn't celebrated that or practiced that. But I've noticed that in recent years, the last few years, there's an uptick in evangelical circles of reintroducing Lent to the worship experience. The reason that it fell away was a number of years ago, John Calvin, Jonathan Edwards, Charles Spurgeon, Martin Lloyd-Jones, all preached against Lent as a harmful tradition of men. They said that the church's traditions were were replacing true spirituality. And while I will agree that is certainly a possibility, it's a possibility, in any tradition that we hold. And every faith practice has its set of traditions. And we have to make sure that our practice matches our reality. And so it was kind of cast aside by the evangelical faith for a number of years until we began to understand there's something of value. Do you know the Bible tells us that we should take time to remember his suffering? That's why we do communion on a regular basis as Often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death until he comes. We don't have much of a problem with Advent coming up to Christmas. We celebrate that time, Advent. We remember that he came and we look forward to his coming again. It seems as though for the church it would be appropriate for us to have some time of reflection before we celebrate the resurrection. I do reject form over substance, but that doesn't mean you have to reject the form. You have to regain the substance. How many are hearing what I'm saying? So it's not just about fasting or stopping from something during a period of time, but identifying with the sufferings of Christ, which Scripture calls us to do. The other thing that happens with evangelical charismatics is that we tend to to want to sanitize our faith. We don't want to deal with the messiness of real life. How many know what I'm talking about? We don't want to deal with people who are sick. We only want to talk about healing. I am in discussion with a friend in another city right now who has another friend who believes that if you have enough faith, everyone will be healed. The only people that believe that are people who aren't sick. We want to sanitize the reality of life. We want to get rid of sickness. We want to get rid of suffering. We want to smile all the time. We want a formula so that if we can add two plus two, we will always get four. If you pray this way, you will always get the results you want. If you live a certain way, you will always be happy, healthy, and prosperous. And how many of you know that life doesn't work that way? We're still in a fallen, broken world. And the byproduct of that then is we can't be authentic about the sufferings of our lives because we're viewed as inferior to those who aren't suffering. And that is not at all what the church was intended by Jesus Christ to be. It was intended to be a place where we join together to share our struggles, where we join together to understand that he is with us in our dilemma, he's with us in our trial, And understand that he's there to provide for us the sustenance that we need. This time of six Sundays coming up to Advent, we're going to take our Advent. Coming up to resurrection is a time that we're going to pause to think about the truths that should help us in our relationship to Jesus as we prepare for The resurrection. Now, they're not going to be stories necessarily from his time of passion, but stones that tell a story. Do you know in the Old Testament, they built altars out of stones and regularly says, these stones are here to tell a story to your children who will follow. Build an altar, erect these stones, and when they say, why are these stones here? You can say, these stones are here because this is what our God did for us stones speak they speak in the new testament as well they represent a number of truths that will help us understand the bedrock of our faith and we'll be exploring those together and each one will have a keyword. so the keyword word for this first boulder that i'd love to lift up and hold over my head <laughs> the key word is truth the essence of everything that we do spiritually has to be based on truth not on myths, not even on traditions, not on our practices and our customs, but on truth. And everything that we celebrate in the church, we need to make sure is anchored to the rock and built upon truth. How many are with me still, all right? Three of you, that's better than I expected. (laughs) We're going to visit the Garden of Gethsemane and talk about the missing stone. Our first stone is a a, a mythical stone, a stone that doesn't exist. Many of you have seen this picture or perhaps have this portrait of Jesus in the garden. And he's kneeling at a stone. If you, I'm okay if you have this, please don't. No cards and letters this week about why did you ruin my grandma's favorite picture, okay? (laughs) Because I am sure there are many times that Jesus prayed this way. He retreated to pray, would go to the garden to pray. He would find a place to spend time with his Father, the disciples noticed that, and Scripture reminds us that he often withdrew to pray. And I'm sure that many times it was like that. I I imagine there was a cloudy night when the moonbeams hit him right in the head. I'm sure that there was a time like that. I don't have a problem with that, except that doesn't reflect what happened in Gethsemane. This sanitizes the Gethsemane experience. And it's what we like to do with all of our problems. We like to clean them up and present them for church with dressed up clothes and a smiling face. If we were to capture what Jesus looked like praying in Gethsemane, we need to get the stone of fable out of the way that he didn't kneel at and look at the story in the way that it really is and it would look more like this. Mark tells us when Jesus went into the garden to pray, he didn't kneel at a stone. It says he fell on the ground in agony. And this morning, I want to give you freedom during the Lenten season to not have to pretend that everything's okay, that it's all right for us to gather together and say, I'm not okay. I am broken. I'm dealing with some difficult issues in my life, and let this be a healing environment where we encourage and strengthen and hold one another up. There are no perfect people in God's church. There are only people who are struggling with life's journey. And if you're one of those, please hold up your neighbor's hand. (laughs) That's all of us. So I want us to experience a little bit this morning of what really happened in the garden. Sometimes we need to remove stones that block our vision of truth. And the first stone is one that needs to be rolled away and replaced with a stone of truth. What does the garden experience tell us? The first thing that I want to suggest to you this morning is it tells us that overwhelming sorrow is a normative experience. That overwhelming sorrow is a normative experience. When you're carrying a load of grief that is more than you can bear, that is driving you down, you are not an inferior Christ follower because you're having a struggle. In this world, we will have tribulations. In this world, we will have difficulty. Listen to what the scripture says about Jesus in the garden. He took Peter and two sons, Zebedee, along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Now, if you would listen to a lot of the faith teachers so-called today, they would say that Jesus was out of the will of God. How many of you believe that he was never out of the will of God? Come on. Help me this morning. He was never out of the will of God. He was sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death now i'm going to ask you to be honest authentic there's one thing to be sad there's another thing to carry so much sorrow that you wished you could die have how many of you have ever been in that place i have where the load was so big that it broke me the load was so heavy that i would rather be dead than face another day. Jesus was there. Are you hearing me this morning? Jesus was there. Jesus, the son of God, said that I am experiencing sorrow that is overwhelming to the point of death. Stay here and watch with me. Going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground He fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Jesus was not just sad. He was overwhelmed with sorrow. The Bible tells us that he is touched with the feeling of our infirmity. And I want you to know this morning that there isn't any place that you will go that Jesus hasn't been there. He's felt that load. He's experienced that struggle. He will never have to say to you, I don't know what that's like. He's experienced a whole range of human emotions and as such is our intercessor and our advocate. His pain and suffering was real. I do not need a superhero that cannot feel pain whose bullets bounce off their chest. I need a mediator. Who knows where i am and jesus knows that place philippians chapter 3 verse 10 i want you to know christ or he said i want to know christ and the power of his resurrection and we shout that and we will shout it on resurrection sunday he has risen the power of his resurrection but paul doesn't stop there he says i want to also know him in the fellowship of his suffering being made like him or being made conformable unto his death, if somehow I might attain to the resurrection. And that word fellowship means participation in. It doesn't mean just reading about. And I'm going to suggest to you that there's something about our faith and there's something about the knowledge of God that can't be understood until we're in the crucible of pain. You may not like this um, and... (laughs) Frankly, that's never been one of my primary motivations. I've said this before and people have chafed at it, but when our son passed away from lymphoma, I remember walking across the platform in the church praying, asking God to help me to make sense of it. And I, I could tell all kinds of stories, but I'll never forget a moment where he said, in this moment, this isn't why my son died, our son died, but in this moment, you're sensing a part of my heart, the heart of God, that can't be experienced without walking through the fire of suffering. I love you enough to bring you a little closer to my side, if you will let me. You see, the crucible of suffering and your response to it is a choice you make. It can drive you away from God or it can draw you closer to his side. Paul said, I want to know the fellowship, the participation in his suffering. And that doesn't mean that you go around and slam your fingers in a car door just so you can feel pain. It means that in those moments of suffering that he will be especially real and especially close to you. It's interesting, the word fellowship of his suffering also means a gift jointly contributed, a gift given together, a contribution, exhibiting um, an embodiment and proof of fellowship. It's what makes it real. The power of his resurrection is wonderful. It's what we strive for. It is the end of the story, but on the way to the story, experiencing suffering is not something to be rejected. Now, if you desire to suffer, you have another problem. you really do but I want you to hear me this morning as a child of God avoiding suffering is not what should drive us fellowship with his suffering is what should drive us let us not be afraid of those times of sorrow because in them God reveals something about you and about him that is only experienced there that we should want to enter into that. And Lent is a time to remember the truth of his passion. Jesus really did suffer. So how did he make it? How will we make it? If suffering is overwhelming sorrow is a normative experience, Does that mean we should camp out here and just live here and all feel bad for each other? Not at all, because suffering is something you travel through. It's not a place where you camp out. It's a place that you press through to get to victory on the other side. And the Bible tells us about Jesus that we should fix our eyes on Jesus, who is the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. What got him through the suffering? No- It would produce knowing that it would be the redemption of all of God's created beings and it would result in him being glorified again. What gets you through sorrow? Not enjoying it, but looking forward to the joy that will come on the other side. Weeping cannot be ignored for the night, but weeping that is endured for the night will experience joy in the morning. And our goal isn't to weep every night. It's to press through the weeping till we experience joy in the morning. It was joy that drove him. And the joy that is most meaningful is that joy that you experience after you've been through the fire of affliction. I, um, I, I worry about people who are always asking to see a miracle. I want to see a miracle Do you know what a miracle means? It means somebody's in big trouble. It is not a miracle when I enjoy a piece of pecan pie. (laughs) That's not miraculous. Miracles come when you're so sick, you don't know which way to move. When you're so broken, you don't know where there's Where there's any help to come from, when you're so destitute, there's no answer. Miracles come in the middle of the darkness and the greatness of the miracle is always measured by the depth of the pain and suffering. Are you hearing what I'm saying? So don't wish for a miracle. But when the trouble comes, no. (laughs) When the trouble comes, no. I said, when the trouble comes, no, that there's a miracle on the other side. Joy comes in the morning. Someone helped me this morning. I said, joy comes in the morning. The second principle from the garden in Luke twenty-two forty-three 43 is that supernatural sustenance is readily available. Supernatural sustenance is readily available. In Luke chapter 22, the Bible says this, an angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him, And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. I do not know what that means. I don't know how that happened. I'm sure it was not a Vulcan mind meld. And we have in charismatic traditions, gone to the extreme of trying to study angels and made them more important than God and his spirit. I'm just gonna believe what scripture says that somehow in some supernatural way, when Jesus who was fully man is completely at the end of his endurance and can't go any further, God the father sent an angel. To help carry part of that load the question is often asked will god give you more than you can bear well i don't know if god gives you more than you can bear i can tell you you'll go through some experiences that are more than you can bear why would you say that because this was more than jesus could bear are you hearing me this morning if jesus came to a place that in his human form, he needed divine sustenance. You and I are going to hit those same spots. And when he hit it, God the Father didn't leave him alone, but dispatched an angel to come alongside and give him the spiritual lift that he needed. He was made stronger. So what did he do? Are you ready for this? What did he do when he was made stronger? I know what I'd have done. I'm out of this place. I feel stronger. Victory's won. Let's go home and let's have some coffee. Let's have some refreshment. Let's get out of this place. So picture this. He's at the end of his endurance. An angel comes and somehow strengthens him. And what did Jesus do? He took that source of strength from heaven and channeled it into praying even more earnestly you see the battle comes or the strength comes not so you could escape from the battle but to give you the wherewithal that you need to finish and get through it it's never about quitting it's about winning overcoming coming through the Top side triumphant. And it says that his sweat was like great drops of blood falling to the ground. Now, some would say like great drops of blood falling to the ground meant that he was sweating heavily. But you know that there is a condition called hematidrosis? It's it's rare, it happens in animals and in humans that when you're in times of incredible stress, overwhelming stress your blood pressure can so increase that the capillaries that surround the sweat glands can actually burst into the sweat gland and sweat mixed with blood. It is possible for that to ooze out all over your body. Now, imagine what he looked like after that. I tend to believe that if it was in that kind of anguish that that medical condition happened and tells us how serious this spiritual battle was. Let me tell you that the battle wasn't about strength to endure the cross. It was about strength to endure the cross because the entire future of God's plan depended on Jesus winning this battle. Do you know who he was fighting for? He was fighting your battle and mine. He was fighting the battle that every one of us will face so that after the resurrection for all of us, there'd be offered newness of life and a new way to live. He didn't back up, but he pressed on in spiritual warfare. He prayed more earnestly. <laughs> Let me just ask you, I, I, I know that there are times that we need relief and we need respite and we need a break. And I know that the Bible tells us there's no testing that will come upon you that God won't provide a way of escape when you're unable to bear it. I believe that. But I believe the mindset should be, God, give me the strength to blast through this rather than God, give me a way out of this. When you get through it, There'll be victories won on the other side, not just for you but for your family and friends and people that you associate with that you can say to them, when you face this challenge, when you face this battle, I've found a way through and God gave me strength and I didn't give up. I took all of He that he gave me and put it back into the battle in order to win the victory. The Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14. Are not all angels, ministering spirits, sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? We're not called to seek them. We're not called to command them. We're not called to identify them. We're not called to have tea and crumpets with them. They are at his disposal. But what should encourage you is that supernatural sustenance is readily available to you, it is readily available. God's army is ready to be dispatched on your behalf. God is watching, and you are never alone. Come on. God is watching, and you are never alone. So if we understand that overwhelming sorrow is a normative experience, we're going to go through that. That supernatural sustenance is readily available. God is there ready to move on our behalf then you put those together and come to this conclusion, a sustainable strategy is presently accessible, that there is a sustainable strategy. When he came back to them in Luke twenty-two forty-six, 46, he said, why are you sleeping? Wouldn't that be disappointing? This is a sidebar, it's really not part of the message this morning, but it's just an extra tidbit. Please don't ever expect people to feel the same pain you feel when you're going through your trial. That's unrealistic. They're just not going to. Most people can't empathize unless they've been in that same battle. So when they don't understand what you're going through and they disappoint you, don't get mad. Just go back to the one who does understand, and his name is Jesus. People will let you down. Look to your neighbor and just say that. People will let you down. Don't say they let you down. People will let you down. How many of you have been let down by someone? You thought they'd be there for you, and they weren't. That's going to happen, and so that's not your life source. What destroys marriages is when... A spouse looks to the other spouse as their life source, so they look to the church as a life source, so they look to their pastor as a life source, and when they don't get what they want, they're disappointed. I talked I talk to a pastor um, who talked to another pastor, and that's the best way to get the best stories when it's once removed.
2: <laughs>
1: and there was a couple leaving his church. He's been there about 18 months, and he said, why are you leaving? And they said, well, we can't go to a church that doesn't have a cross in the auditorium. And he said, there's never been a cross in this auditorium. People will look for reasons sometimes to let you down. Just remember, human flesh fails, it's weak, And when you need them most, they'll probably be asleep. (laughs) But there's one who's always awake. Learn to go to him. Learn to go to him. Learn to go to him. Jesus said to them, why are you sleeping? Get up and pray. Not because I need your help. Notice what he says. He doesn't say, get up and pray because I need you. He said, get up and pray so that you don't fall into temptation. There's a sustainable strategy for all of us to get through life's journey. What is that? Don't fall asleep. We could give any number of reasons why they fell asleep. But the urgency of the hour was lost on them. They didn't feel the sorrow and the pain. They didn't understand. And because their eyes were clouded to what was really happening around them and they didn't feel the urgency... They fell into slumber do you know the bible warns us over and over again about spiritual slumber that we should arise that we should awaken that we should not slumber and sleep but give our attention to what's happening around us how do you do that he says get up and pray so you won't fail prayer is the key to getting through life's difficulties to arise from slumber that's a choice And to pray, that's an action. You make a choice to get up. The first place for you to make spiritual progress is when you decide to get up. In our family room, it's my favorite room in our house, because it has four, every chair in our family room reclines. (laughs) No matter where you sit, you can put your feet up. I've tried them all and I have my favorite and you better stay out of my chair. My grandson Simeon when he comes in will go to that chair first, kick back, put his hand behind his head and stretch out and I will walk in and say, boy, that's my chair. You can get out on your own strength or on my strength. I don't care which way it happens. You're getting out of my chair and he'll laugh and uh, take one of the other recliners. But there have been so many times I've been sitting in that recliner and I knew I needed to do something. Man, I should be doing something. I don't know about you, but you know what the biggest battle for me is? To get out of the chair. Once I put that leg thing down and get up, I'm on my way. I'm good. But it's that battle to get up. I have to decide to get up and do something. And Jesus is saying, you've got to decide, church, to get up. Wherever you're at right now, you've got to decide to get up, to quit being comfortable where you are. Get up. If you don't work at it, if you don't strive for it, you're not going to get any better. Our Heartland Youth Choir, if they don't decide to practice and to work, they'll never reach the next level. You have to make a decision to get out of your chair of comfort and move forward into what you're called to do. He's saying, get up. It's hard to fall asleep while you're walking. (laughs) And pray. We just spent three weeks talking about prayer. We could have spent three years talking about prayer. Because prayer is not an idle form, it's communication with God. And with all the formulas and strategies there are, it's communion with him, it's talking with him, and then listening to the voice of the Spirit speak in the stillness and quietness of your inner man, the impression, the direction that will come from that, that you spend time in that kind of relationship. The Bible tells us that we need to build ourselves up in our faith. Praying, spirit-anointed prayers, feeding on the Word of God. You want your life to change? Spend some time in this book. It is alive. There's energy and life in this, and you can't read this without being changed. And fellowship with other believers. And I'll suggest to you that when people fall asleep, one of those three have gotten weak. They've either quit praying, they've quit reading or they quit fellowshipping, and it puts them in the easy chair of complacency, and somebody needs to awaken them. A sustainable strategy is presently accessible. Our key word is truth. Jesus didn't placidly pray in Gethsemane. He prayed and poured out drops of blood in our behalf. And to you, I cannot guarantee that you won't. In fact, I can guarantee that you will go through a struggle. And this needs to be a place where we hold one another up and it's safe to say I'm having a hard time yeah. because it is not the will of God that you stay in the struggle. Do you know that he, what he wants to do? The Lord wants to bless you and keep you. He wants to make his face shine upon you. He wants to be gracious to you and give you peace. That is the truth, the choir would come. for your life it's God's desire for you that in the midst of your struggle remember that he laid face down in the garden so that you could have the strength to get through let's remove the rocks of myth myth and fable and see him as he really was and in your struggle he's been there and he will make his face shine upon you. Jesus, we love you. We thank you for your presence in this place. Help us never forget that you're a faithful God. And as we approach this Lenten season, remind us of what you've done for us so that we can press through to a place of victory in Jesus' name. And everyone who loves him said, amen, amen. God bless you. Shake someone's hand. Encourage them. Be a blessing to someone this morning.